It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Julia Hartley Brewer at breakfast on Talk Radio. Good morning to you. Thank you very much indeed for your company. Delighted to have your company and indeed the company of my next guest, the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, who joins us now. Better late than ever. We finally got you, Matt Hancock. Good morning to you. Well, it's very nice to hear from you. Are you OK? I'm very well indeed. How are you after your, your battles for the last half hour with uh, Piers Morgan on GMB? <laughs> like a pussycat. <laughs> Which one? You or him? Yeah, well, you, uh, I'll leave that for you, Julia, to decide. The, 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 um, you know, the, the important thing is that there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, good things happening, a lot of challenges remaining, and so we were able to talk about it. Okay. You know, the Prime Minister self-isolating, I'm sure we'll get on to that. Well, let's, let's get on to that right now. The Prime Minister is self-isolating. He had COVID six months ago. Um, if, so if someone has to self-isolate for two weeks, uh, despite having had COVID, I mean, how does that mm. mode for the vaccine? Because the whole point of the vaccine is it gives you a level of immunity. If we're assuming mm. that people don't have immunity from having the virus, doesn't that also mean you don't have immunity from having the vaccine? So in what way does the rollout of the vaccine actually enable us to get back to normal life? You know, that is a great question. And there's a really clear scientific answer, which is that with the vaccine, because we have a trial with 43,000 people, we've been able to measure the answer to exactly that question. When it comes to individuals who, like the Prime Minister, like me, um, had coronavirus, um, it, it's only by actually then following some people who have had it that we can answer that question for people who got the disease um, in, well, hold in on the a community. Minute. You don't need a trial for that. I mean, we've got the World Health Organization, organization reckon that something like 750 million people have had the virus. Um, yeah. 50 million confirmed to have had the virus around the world. Only yes. five people have been confirmed out of all those many tens of millions of people to got infected a second time. Well, the problem is that we haven't been able to measure uh, until now, the number of people who uh, the, the track people who have had it and check that they don't get it again. Uh, the reported numbers are not necessarily don't necessarily pick up all the cases. However, the good news, Julia, is that we have a piece of research that's going on to answer exactly that question. 
And at the same time, of course, the vaccine clinical trials um, study that question. And I think everybody was uh, was relieved. And there was, you know, this this air of hope that was injected into the into the country, actually into the world when we got the news of the the effectiveness of the of the first vaccine that we got results for uh, from Pfizer last week. Well, I guess I was very hopeful on the day that that was announced and uh, we were yeah. trying to go with the good news. But there's been a lot of um, sort of down, you know, downscale news since then. We've quite, quite apart from the fact that one of the people who helped develop it, uh, along with Pfizer, um, BioNTech, that they were saying, look, look, this could bring us back to normality by next winter. I mean, there's all this hope of a vaccine being rolled out in a matter of a few weeks. Um, realistically, being able to vaccinate even, you know, the, the, the 12 million most um, you know, elderly and vulnerable people in the country. That doesn't get us back to normal. The vaccine itself, even if we have this vaccine or we have hundreds of other vaccines, doesn't enable us to get back to normal life anytime soon at all, does it? Well, it, it depends how effective the vaccine is on reducing the um, the transmission of the disease as well as protecting an individual. So the vaccine we know from this trial with lots of people, 43,000 in the trial, we know um, it is effective at protecting 90% from getting the disease. The, but the, it's only once you start vaccinating large numbers of people in the population that you can work out how effective it is at stopping people transmitting the disease. So what I, I saw what the... Um, uh, what the uh, the scientists behind uh, BioNTech, which is the company that came up with this, uh, the Pfizer vaccine, um, was saying. He was saying that he was confident of getting back to normal by next uh, winter, but we will know far more as we roll it out and keep very carefully monitoring the the uh, the impact as as we roll it out. So, and of course, that vaccine is only one of uh, of a whole number that we've got. Um, uh, that we're that we're working on. There's the AstraZeneca one, uh, famously, where we hope to see the data in the next few weeks, um, and then uh, today we we are starting in the UK the clinical trials of a vaccine from Janssen, which will take for longer, six to nine months until that might be ready. Um, but um, but we're keeping rolling on with more and more of okay. these vaccines to try to finally get this thing under control. Okay, and when we have a vaccine, various vaccines uh, proven to be safe and they get rolled out, mm. will the vaccine ever be compulsory or will it uh, enable, say, access to, for instance, travel? If you haven't had the vaccine, you can't get on a plane or, or you can't use certain public services. You can't, for instance, send your children to school. Or will we be looking at some compulsory element to the vaccine? Well, it, it's complex because there's some people who, for medical reasons, can't have a vaccine. And so it, it does have to be. It's a complex question. Um, of course, I want as many people as possible to take it. And we won't be allowing it. We won't be regulating it. Um, the regulators wouldn't let it happen until it is both effective, which we know on the Beyond, on the BioNTech Pfizer one, and safe. And the safety is critical as well. So the um, uh, so, you know, that's that's what we've got. To, that's the next stage. That's what we've got to get through. No, but next. this is not it's not that complex a question, is it? Are we going to force people to have the vaccine or not? Well, we're not proposing that it'll be mandatory. Uh, for, partly for the reasons that I set out, that some people can't have it, for for instance, for medical reasons. But we do want a very large proportion of people to take it. And this year, the biggest proportion ever of the population um, are taking the flu vaccine, the most ever. 
uh, and uh, that's for good reason. So I hope that we can. Uh, I hope we can. We 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 uh, we so can take that to the next level. You're categorically with the, with the ruling out it becoming okay. We understand there are people who who can't take you know any any mm. vaccines or any, you know, MMR. Some children can't have MMR on the reason. We 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 know that. But for the large scale population who could safely have this vaccine, you are categorically ruling out making it compulsory or mandatory or having any public services or of access to anything contingent on people having the vaccine. Is that correct? Well, I hope that a very large proportion of people will want to take the vaccine That's because it's the right thing to do. Well, then we haven't, uh, we ha- we're not proposing at this stage to make it mandatory. At we this don't stage. think that will be. So you're not well, ruling, we... you are not ruling out a no, mandatory I've, I've, vaccine creation programme. Honestly, I've learned not to rule things out during this pandemic because so... we have to watch what happens and you have to make judgments accordingly. So you, it is, it, you're saying that it is, it is totally feasible, it is totally still on the cards, that we could see people effectively being held down and forcibly given the vaccine or imprisoned if they refuse to have the vaccine? Well, you're trying to put words into my I... mouth both one way and then the other, and I'm not going to. I'm going to okay. explain what the position is, which right. is that we, we, we don't plan um, a mandatory element. As long as enough people the... use the vaccine. Well, not least because of the complications right. that there are around that, because okay. some people can't yeah, have that, it. Well, they, those would be exempt, wouldn't they? Well, and, and what do you make of the the Labour position about having a, an anti-vax, sort of fake news ban, emergency laws brought in to stop dissemination of fake uh, fake facts about uh, yeah. made-up lies, basically, about the risks of vaccinations yes. generally? Um, do, you, do you think that there should be a social media ban on this? Well, we've, we've, um, we've got a huge amount of work going on on this and they uh, are working with and pushing the social media companies to uh, to play their part in the very large part they already are uh, but there's more things that we can do together and uh, that's what we're working on okay just finally um december the second we're end of the second lockdown the legislation actually fails at that point uh, there have to be another vote in the house of commons for there to be another lockdown prime minister says there won't be a third one he said there wouldn't be a second one so forgive us if we're not too trusting what happens on the second of december what is the plan what is the exit strategy from this lockdown well it's too early to say exactly what the um uh, the conditions will be because we have to see the impact of this lockdown on getting the numbers of cases down. I mean, you and I have debated um, whether this uh, second lockdown was necessary. It absolutely was. Why and we was can it? see that because we can see that the number of cases was continuing to go up, unfortunately. Um, Carl Hennigan, the professor of evidence-based medicine, was on my show an hour ago and pointed out that COVID cases flatlined two weeks ago. Well, they've still they've been going up uh, on the data that's published every day. They flatlined so it's worth... two weeks ago. Hospitals well, aren't being overwhelmed. Most hospitals that's... are at normal capacity for the time of year. Well, it's it's not true that they're He's flatlined. Lying. Actually, is Carl um, Hennigan he, lying? He, he he is a is he mistaken? A very, well, he's very rare. Um, in that within the scientific debate, it's it's fair to say that he's an outlier. What I prefer to do is look at the information. For instance, last week, on one day last week, I think it was Thursday, we saw 33,000 cases. That was the highest number. Um, a jump of 50%, 50% in one day and mm, it went down again. Right. I mean, does that suggest to you there's a problem with the testing rather than there's been a massive big jump on one day and loads of people getting infected? Uh, no, it suggests to me that, unfortunately, the number of cases 
has been going up and we want to see it coming down. And all those, every single person who told me, don't worry, the number of cases is coming down, uh, is unfortunately that's contradicted okay. by the objective okay. evidence. No, but OK, here's the thing. You're, you're saying, I just want to clarify, I know your people are desperate to get you, you, you your fare because you've got to go on to other things. It's not my fault that Piers Morgan ran over our time. Carl Hennigan, the professor of evidence-based medicine at Oxford University, says that cases flatlined two weeks ago, looking at the actual official data, hospitals are not being uh, overwhelmed. They're not at above average capacity in the vast I, majority of hospitals. And you're saying yeah. he's wrong. <clears throat> Yeah, I am, because I look at the Office for National Statistics so data, which shows it's going up. Well, evidently, um, I, I'll, I'll just stick to the facts and the truth. Okay. And if you want to go on the Office for National Statistics website, you can see that the numbers were going up. And if you want to look at the government's daily data on yep. coronavirus.data.gov.uk, you can see it for yourself. And I think it's just so important that we uh, we follow the objective facts and and make decisions accordingly. And that's what I'll keep doing. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Another week of lockdown across England. Uh, prospect of, well, best case scenario, going into tier three. Still a lot of restrictions on our life uh, come December the 3rd after the lockdown ends. The Prime Minister in self-isolation, a vaccine on the cards. But how quickly will that change our lives? Well, let's talk about, well, the evidence for all of this. Let's talk to uh, uh, my guest this morning, Carl Hennigan, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, who kindly joins us once again. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julian. Good morning. Um, we're going to be talking to the health secretary a little bit later on, asking him an awful lot of, uh, of these questions. But um, first of all, I'd just like to ask you about Boris Johnson self-isolating. Um, he had the virus. We know he, he was tested positive for, for the antigens. He was treated. He was a life and death scenario. Um, realistically, does he need to self-isolate just this few months on because he's come into contact with someone who's tested positive? 
Well, the reason he's self-isolating is because he's got to follow the rules that they put in place. But we've seen about 55 million cases of coronavirus detected, but only a handful of people have been reinfected. And they tend to make the news in a disproportional way. This virus is operating in the same way as many other acute respiratory pathogens, and our immune system is responding in a normal way. So the chances are that Johnson, uh, the prime minister, is protected, but with his rules in place, he has to abide by the rules. And I think you made an important point. The question here is social distancing is important. The question is, did that MP really need to be at the 10 Downing Street? And that's a question you ask yourself when you go about your daily business. Do I need to do this or could I actually have done it by Zoom and that would have protected the Prime Minister? Yeah, indeed. Well, look, let's uh, let's talk about where we are with the lockdown right now. Of course, we were taken into the lockdown under, as many people would say, a false premise, given that's 4,000 a day uh, in in, uh, uh, in uh, deaths we were talking about. Uh, the Boris Johnson standing with uh, Pastor Patrick Valance and uh, Professor Chris Whitty, that was debunked by you within hours, only the next day, uh, that they, those were old figures and they were not accurate figures at all and that was never likely to happen um in terms of an exit strategy from this lockdown how close are we to getting to a point where it would be even on the grounds that the prime minister wants us to go into lockdown it would be safe for us to leave the lockdown where are we in terms of infections uh, um, um, hospital admissions and deaths so it's important to recognise all of them scenarios that came through the modelling from deaths are now being shown to be incorrect. But second was the important information about hospitals being overwhelmed. And actually, they're not being overwhelmed. What we're seeing is there are about 84% of capacity, which is normal for this time of year. There are some pressures around the system. In the Midlands, where we're seeing cases go up slightly, they have critical care units. Two of them are at surge capacity. Over 200 acute hospitals collect data in their critical care units. About 70% of them are at normal pressures at this time of year. So that's important. What we've seen with cases, this is really important about this yo-yo of lockdown opening up, closing down, is they were flatlining about two weeks ago. Nobody reports in Liverpool anymore that there are less than 50% of the cases. All 10 boroughs in Manchester are reporting cases going down. But with this, the lockdown, what happened for about 48 hours is it was almost like Christmas Eve out there. So you create these surges and that actually is fed through to a peak in about the 9th of November. I suspect, and if we'd have just kept where we were, actually cases would be slightly lower than where we are now. So what I'm looking now for is for us to flatten out this yo-yo cycle of lockdown, circuit breakers, fire breakers into a sensible strategy as we come out and that we maintain this now right through the whole winter. And this is the key. You're one of the key signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. By no well, means are you... I'm not signatory of oh. the Barrington Declaration, just to let you know. Oh, I apologise. I, I, I do apologise. I, I thought you were. Um, I, that was reported at the time. I do apologise and correct oh. that. Um, uh, but I mean, this is not about, you know, the virus isn't dangerous. It's a hoax. No one has to worry about it. We People need to be careful. We need to social distance, hand washing, the hygiene, all of the advice we've been given. It's absolutely sensible. This is a deadly virus. It does it does spread and it does kill people. This is about having a proportionate response that does actually lead to the least, uh, least amount of deaths. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. This is a virus like many others that actually can be deadly. Things like flu and RSV are de more deadly in children. What we're looking for is minimise the social disruption, the minimise the impact on the economy, but us be aware of two very important factors where I think it breaks down. One is, as we've seen with the Prime Minister, is social distancing is what matters. So if you can work from home, you work from home. There's no need for me to go into 10 Downing Street for a photo opportunity. But the second one that I see break down all the time, if you have symptoms, you should be staying at home. And I'm seeing people who have symptoms, they get a test, but while they're waiting for the results, they're still going about their daily life. So I would like that message to be particularly reinforced. If you have symptoms, you stay at home. Um, let's talk about the vaccine. We've had lots of hope from this Pfizer uh, vaccine last week uh, and, and one of the, the people involved in it, BioNTech, saying, well, you know, we could be rolling this out by spring, realistically, you know, on, on, on a mass scale, um, which would mean by next winter things could be back to normal. We were told, you know, in March, you know, three-week lockdown and then things would be back to normal in the summer and then things would be back to normal by Christmas, then the spring. Now we're talking about another year. Is a vaccine, or indeed the rapid tests and the mass rollout of mass tests, or, or any combination of all of these things, the uh, the game changer that gets us back to normal? Or do you think that this isn't necessarily a decision uh, that is based on the medical and scientific facts? It's more of a political will? Well, what I find incredibly frustrating, as you said, my job is evidence-based medicine. Soon as we got the announcement of the vaccine, I was looking for the evidence, looking for the research, but actually it's still not there because it was released in a press release. So it's highly frustrating when you want to be able to say, look, I can tell you what it means by 90% effective when I look at the research in a published peer-reviewed literature, but I can't do that. So it's not clear to me, is that 90% reduction in symptoms? Is it 90% reduction in hospitalization or death? So all of these remain unanswered, but there are so many vaccines in development now. There are 12 in phase three clinical trials. That's the point at which you'll be able to make a decision. But I suspect we'll have to temper our enthusiasm to wait for that information to come through on the critical outcomes like hospitalization, death, and whether it actually reduces infections and be a bit more tempered about these press releases, which are hard to interpret. Well, indeed, we don't even know, you know, who the people this was uh, tested on and, and uh, age profile and risk profile, do we? Let's talk about what happens at Christmas. So much of current policy has been predicated on we need to, you know, get back to some semblance of normality for Christmas, people being able to see their extended family, at least some of them over the Christmas holidays. Um, do you think that from the figures that you're seeing in terms of hospital capacity, ITU capacity, infection rates alike, that we will be out of lockdown uh, on the 2nd of December and that we will be able to have some semblance of a normal Christmas? So I want to put forward about in September when I did speak to the Prime Minister, I put this forward, this plan forward then, and I still think it's relevant. You see, December and January is also our worst years for other infections, the ones I've talked about, like influenza, RSV. And part of the problem is schools run right up to Christmas and then they have a very short break. And so we have lots of infections in December and then our death rates go up in January. So what I've said is what we need to think about is what minimises the social disruption. Well, actually, you could extend the school holidays. And the reason be be because of that is a week is not enough to come out of school, get well and then go and see grandma. 
But if you had two weeks, we could have social contact bubbles where we agree for the week before we're going to look after ourselves. We're going to reduce our contacts and then we'll be able to see grandma because we've had enough time to get well and realize we're not going to take an infection. And it might not be COVID. It could be one of the others. And actually, if you look at it historically, we've had our big break in summer when we don't need it. Actually, if we had an extended break in Christmas, we may see year on year an impact as we go into January when deaths can go up to 14, 15,000 a week, which is four or five thousand more than what we see in the middle of August. OK, but realistically, right now, we are not seeing any unusual uh, excess death numbers, are we? I mean, we always see deaths go up in the autumn, they go up in the winter generally. Um, but right now, even across the whole of Europe, we are not seeing anything unusual. I mean, certainly 2019, a very low uh, death rate, uh, which thought contributed to why we had such a high death rate in, in April from COVID. But you look back, say 2018, uh, the numbers look remarkably similar. And that was obviously before we had COVID. Yeah, and I think you're pointing to an incredibly important point. We get this daily diet of figures and it just gives you a headline number. And what we do is look to the excess deaths. And what we're seeing right now is actually a very small number of excess deaths. But you get this daily diet, which becomes scary. There is one number that still uh, concerns me, and that's the number of people who are dying in their own home. And that's been elevated now for five to six months right throughout this pandemic. And 90 percent of them are not deaths from COVID. And that's contributing significantly to our excess throughout the whole year. But particularly in hospital, the excess deaths are small, actually. It's about 200 compared to what we'd normally see at this time of year in the last week. So I think if you change your emphasis away from the actual number, it'd be much more helpful if we produce much more data about the excess death figures so people could put it in context. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Uh, let's turn our attention to the big reset. Uh, Boris Johnson, of course, uh, self-isolating right now, having come into contact with the Tory MP uh, who has uh, come down with a positive COVID test. Uh, but uh, this was supposed to be yet another big government reset. An awful lot of that was about uh, the Green Revolution, because apparently that's what we're all desperately looking for, is people losing their jobs, livelihoods and having all their freedom stripped away. Uh, the government is now, we're told this week, to announce they're going to step forward with their ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars. It was going to be 2040. It's now going to be 2030. That's in a bid to uh, tackle climate change and reach their net zero emissions target. But um, how uh, feasible is that? Let's talk to Lord Ridley. He's a Tory peer. He's also author of How Innovation Works and has been writing about and investigating green environmental issues for many years. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Um, another, re- another, another week, another Tory reset, as we often hear. And we've been told again and again this obsession that the government now has with the green agenda. We're told this is very much Carrie Simons, the Prime Minister's girlfriend's agenda, rather than more than Boris Johnson's. But it's all about being cuddly-feely and uh, the net zero emissions target, which apparently is the obsession of the North London middle classes, although not the obsession, I don't think, of ordinary people right now worried about losing their jobs. Um, let's talk about this ban being brought forward it's only the sale of new petrol and diesel cars so they just won't be available you won't be able to buy one they won't be on sale in the forecourts what is then going to happen in 2030 is that going to be a big sea change well i'm worried that it's unrealistic to to do it this fast you can't summon up innovation uh necessarily to uh, meet your goals as fast as you can and at the moment uh, an electric car 
probably doesn't have lower emissions overall than a diesel or petrol car, because after all, uh, the electricity has to be generated using gas mostly. Uh, the uh, car has to be built. That requires emissions, a lot more emissions than for a diesel or petrol car, because you've got to mine all the, the stuff that goes into the battery and so on. You add all that up as the lifetime cycle, and you make certain assumptions about how long the battery lasts, and you end up with arguably it's saving a few emissions, maybe not much. So the contribution this would make to the net zero target is minimal. But at the same time, you're having to subsidize the sale of these cars because they're very expensive. Uh, so that costs the taxpayer a lot of money. But the taxpayer is not going to get fuel duty from uh, petrol and diesel to the same extent. Uh, so that's going to cost the taxpayer even more money. So uh, it's going to require either more borrowing or higher taxes. It's not going to reduce emissions. Uh, and uh, I fear it's like 10 years ago when we were forced to buy compact fluorescent light bulbs, yeah. uh, yes. which turned out to be a huge mistake because uh, not only were they deeply unsatisfactory in all sorts of ways, and they didn't last as long as promised, um, but also there was a much better technology called LED waiting in the wings that was simply delayed by that ridiculous decision. I, I, I still order my light there. bulbs from abroad so I can have my old style lights because they actually are a better, uh, a better light. But this is the thing. Um, the, you know, it's, it's all very well. The idea is that you have this target and then you kind of force the manufacturers and lots of other countries around Europe doing similar things. You force the manufacturers to act. You, you speed up that process of innovation. And the argument being that, look, electric cars will be become more efficient when they have to be and 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 there will be more charging points when they need to be and you kind of you you drive that with with the law and everyone knowing it comes it's coming in but but again the reality of this is this is going to be a massive subsidy of the well-off because only the well-off are going to be buying brand new cars and going to be buying brand new cars that cost more because they're electric and cost more to make. Um, this is a subsidy uh, goes to them. But again, you hit on the key thing there, the fuel duty. A lot of people, there's a benefit to having an electric car in terms of, oh, you know, it's lower parking. You don't have to pay the you know emission zones, certainly in London, congestion zones and ULES and, and in many other uh, cities as well. But, but actually, once everyone's got an electric car they're just going to start taxing electric cars because they need it's a huge 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 part of a of government tax take isn't it yeah i mean you know of course i'm not against electric cars per se I, you know they have other benefits they reduce the amount of uh, air pollution in towns they make less noise uh, and so on uh, but the idea that this is something that ordinary working class people in the north are crying out for uh, is not something I'm convinced by. Uh, mostly, as you say, this ends up being a regressive policy. It ends up transferring money from the poor to the rich because uh, a lot of the cost will end up um, being paid by people who pay uh, um, electricity bills and so on. The, you know, we haven't got nearly enough power stations to produce uh, enough electricity for all the electric cars we're going to have uh, at this rate. So we're going to have to build a lot more. It can't all be wind and solar because you need something when the wind isn't blowing. So you need backup. At the moment, a lot of that's coming from very expensive diesel uh, or gas, which is um, well, gas is not particularly expensive, but the, the diesel backup generators cost a fortune. Um, so the whole system uh, is, is end and, and by the way, the subsidies that go to wind um, are put onto electricity bills, not onto tax bills. Yeah. So they hit, and, and electricity bills are a bigger part of the household budget of poor people than they are of rich Indeed. people. So actually, uh, this is a pretty regressive way of subsidizing some, some 
pretty wealthy people, and that's what worries me. I think when you when you say in the north of England, let's be more environmental, people say, yeah, good idea, let's do that, and they're quite right to say that. But when you say, and by the way, that means you can't heat your home with gas, and it's, it's going to cost you more, and you can't uh, drive an, a, a petrol vehicle, you're going to have to pay more for an electric vehicle, then suddenly their enthusiasm will vanish like snow. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.